Well, please turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. And we're continuing to work our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this morning we have come to a particular section of the letter that is quite a contrast to what we have been considering so far in the last five sermons. From verse 11 of chapter 2 to verse 6 of chapter 4, Paul has been stressing the importance of the unity of God's people because through the cross, Christ has reconciled all people, Jews and Gentiles and whatever the distinctions are, to God and to one another. And what we saw in the last sermon in this series in Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6, Paul was pleading with the church that they would endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But this morning we come to a passage where we see the Apostle Paul going on to point out the diversity of gifts that God gives to his people. And in essence, what he's saying is the church is joined in unity but exists in diversity. And although we tend to think of diversity as being a challenge to unity, God doesn't think about it that way. God's design is to use diversity to bring us into unity. And so with that introduction, let's read the text. Please follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He also descended, sorry, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for work of the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our hearts now as we hear your word. Lord, again, would you do for us in this moment what we have sung in song that you would speak. And Lord, I again for your help, that I would be faithful to your word. I pray that you would keep me from error, and I pray that you would use the preaching of your word for the building of this church and for the glory of your great name. God, help us to see the wisdom that you have displayed in how you have chosen to build your church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
this passage that we have before us, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers, and essentially he is really saying this to all believers. What he's saying is that Christ gives members of his church diverse gifts to unify them and to mature them in him. Christ gives members of his church diverse gifts to unify them and to mature them in him. And by diverse gifts, what is meant is gifts that are different in and of themselves, but also different in terms of measure, in terms of degree. So even where you would find two persons who receive the same gift from Christ, there is no expectation that we can draw from Scripture that those gifts are in the same measure and degree. God gives different giftings and different degrees of giftings to people as he sovereignly chooses. And so we know in reality that sometimes this could be a recipe for a lot of division and strife. We know that this could be a recipe for hindering maturity. But that's not the reason that Christ has given gifts. The reason he's given these gifts is so that we might be unified in our faith and we might be mature in him. So this morning, I want us to consider um, this passage. And I I must confess, I have more notes than I realize we have time, so I'm going to do my best to really condense and try to help us to grasp what is being said to us in this passage. But there are three particular points I want to draw from the passage, and they are, number one, diversity in gifts, number two, unity in faith, and number three, maturity in Christ. So let's consider first what Paul says about diversity and gifts. Again, it's important to remember that Paul has been making the case for the unity of God's people and pleading that we would endeavor to keep this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace because that is what Christ sacrificed his life for, to bring us to God but to also bring us to one another, removing the hostilities, removing the strife and all the things that separate us and to bring us together. And Paul is saying this is a precious thing, endeavor to keep it. But now we see Paul introducing something that seems to be contrasting what he has already been saying. Notice that verse 7 begins with the word but. He says, but grace was given to each one of us. And if you underline in your Bible, you should underline each one of us if it's not already underlined. Grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Here Paul is not talking about saving grace. He's already addressed saving grace in the earlier chapters. God has given us saving grace, but I, I believe what we can call this gift that he is referring to here in verse 7 is we can call it serving grace, a serving gift. God has given us a gift to serve. It is a way that we serve one another, and we are served by one another. And all of these gifts that are given to us are given to us sovereignly, not based on merit, not based on requests, but based on Christ's sovereign design. And one of the things to remember is that God's plans for us are, are comprehensive. Now, sometimes you may find that there may be some natural way that God has made you, made me, and he may give us particular gifts, which are really spiritual gifts, that may complement the way that he has made us. But we need to distinguish between what we may consider natural gifts that even unbelievers have 
and these spiritual gifts that we are looking at this morning that Christ sovereignly bestows. Now, we should remember that these gifts are given to each of us, but they're not just given for us. They're given in terms of us for individually. They're given for the purpose of serving one another. And what that looks like is that we serve each other with, with our gifts. So I serve uh, you, and you serve me, and we serve all one another, and that's the way God intended this to be. Notice the basis for these gifts. It's in verse 8. Paul writes, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, if you have an English Standard Version Bible, that word men would have a footnote to it. And the footnote will say that this word uh, can mean men and women. It can refer to men and women. And in the context, it has to be men and women because we see in verse 7 that this, this grace, this gift is given to each of us, every one of us, meaning uh, males and females. Now, Paul is quoting in verse 8 from Psalm 68, verse 18. And Paul interprets Psalm 68, verse 18 to be referring to Christ referring to Christ and his triumph in his death and in his resurrection and how he took Satan and all of the satanic foes, how he defeated them, and he paraded them openly. And this is more in a spiritual sense because this didn't happen physically, but in reality this happened. In his death and in his resurrection, Christ defeated Satan and satanic forces and made a show of them openly, Scripture says, paraded them openly, but he does something else. And this is a draw on what happened in those days when kings went to battle. When kings went to battle and they won, they would bring the defeated foe and parade them in the streets, but they would also parade the looty. They would also um, parade the bounty the goods that they actually came into possession of because they defeated their enemy. In those days, it was largely possessions, whether it was um, people or whether it was animals and wheat and grain and, and, and other kinds of provisions. Today, of course, the spoils of war is land. And we're seeing that taking place right now in the war in Ukraine where Russia is grabbing land of, of Ukraine, and with that land comes wealth and resources and so forth. And so Paul is drawing on that, and he's saying something very similar happened when Christ defeated satanic forces. Christ also gave gifts to his people. He, he had a bounty from which he gave gifts to his people. And he did this in connection with his ascension. And I think at this point it's important for us to Think about spiritual gifts in a broad way. Here they're referred to as gifts that Christ is giving. But when we talk about spiritual gifts and we say these are gifts that the, the Spirit gives, he's not talking about two different sets of gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, that list uh, a number of spiritual gifts. These are, in truth, the gifts of our triune God. And here's how we know that. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son sent the Spirit when the Son ascended back to heaven. And you may remember that Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. And then 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was given, and with the Spirit came all the gifts. And so the gifts can be referred to as the gifts of Christ or the gifts of God or the gifts of the Spirit or the gifts of our triune God. And so I think that's really important for us to understand that these gifts that Paul is talking about here are spiritual gifts. Gifts of the Spirit, gifts of God, gifts of our triune God. They're all the same. 
Now, in verses 9 and 10, Paul is simply explaining Christ's condescension to the earth, leaving his heavenly throne, and then his ascension back to heaven after he had accomplished the work of redemption. That's what this parenthetical part of what Paul is saying is addressing. Now, some of you may be aware that these verses have some debate around them in terms of um, exactly what it means to descend to the, to, the, to the earth, to descend to the regions of the earth. Um, and time and space and, and the purpose for the sermon this morning, really, I don't think it would be wise to delve into that. But if you have an interest in that, um, you know, feel free to talk with me afterwards and we can explore that and talk about um, what it means. And the reason I'm not going to address it this morning is to establish the point that I've made, that all it is saying is that Christ came to the earth and, and it, it, is, it is really, really low where he came when you consider where he came from in heaven and then he ascended back. That's, that's all it's really saying. But to get into the debate would move me into some other scriptures, which I think will, will get us a bit off course this morning. So here's what I would say about this. And um, as I was studying this, I was mindful of some of our students. And so I see, I see Andre here this morning and any of the other students who are taking their national exams. Um, hopefully some of the things that I would say this morning from this sermon, this and one other thing I'm going to say, I think it will be beneficial to you in your education and a refresher for the rest of us in our education as well. One of the ways that you can read um, anything that you're reading is, when, if, it's, if it's properly written, anything that's in parentheses you should be able to remove and the sentence will still make sense if it's properly written. And this is properly written. And so if we take out verses 9, verses eight, verses nine and 10 and just lay it aside parenthetically because it's in parentheses, the sentence would make absolute um, sense. So let me just show you how that works. Just follow from verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now we're going to jump to verse 11. And he gave. And you see, the point that Paul is making, Paul is not into a debate as to where Jesus descended. That's not the point that he is making. He's making the point that Christ gave gifts to his people. And so when we come to verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So you're able to see that we're able to read past the parenthetical part and get the sense of what is being written. And this is very important when you're trying to understand something and there's something parenthetical. If it's properly written, Remove the parenthetical part, get the sense of it, and you'll be able to navigate your way through what is actually being said. That's the point that Paul is making. Christ has given gifts to his people, and this is the next point. He has given some gifts to equip them. So in verses 11 and 12, look at them again. Verses 11 and 12. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So I think what we can see now is, is really two kinds of gifts that Paul is addressing. In verse 7, we see that he gave each of us gifts. Christ gave each of us gifts. And we can call these gifts serving gifts. And then when we come to verse 11, we see him giving these particular gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, to equip the saints, to equip those who were given the serving gifts to do the work of ministry. I think it's important to grasp that, that... um, now, mind you, the equipping gifts, in a sense, they are serving as well because when they equip, they are serving the people of God. But he does make a distinction where in verse 7, he does not list the gifts. He simply says God has given gifts. And we can look to other parts of Scripture to see where those gifts are. And even there, those gifts are not exhaustive. The, the work of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are very broad but they're all of the Spirit. And so you may look at, for example, 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, and you see a list of gifts. And I think those would be connected with what he says in verse 7. But in verse 11, he lists four particular gifts. Now, a lot has been written about these gifts. A lot has been said about these gifts. But I think for us this morning, it's sufficient just to say a few things. First, the word about apostles and prophets. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Paul tells us that the household of God, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul also refers to the apostles and prophets again in chapter 3, in verses 5 and 7, where he says that God gave to them the revelation of the mystery that Jews and Gentiles will be united together in one body, in one family. They will be partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, the nature of foundations is you lay them once. You don't, you don't have an ever expanding and being built upon foundation. Foundations are laid once and for all. And so the apostles and prophets that Paul refers to in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 are a closed group. They are dead. We don't keep adding to them. Now, there are those who believe that They continue to exist, and how they figure that out is difficult to understand because it would mean that you're trying to build a house, a house of a church, but at the same time expanding the foundation, and and that just doesn't, just does not, doesn't happen. The apostles and the prophets that Paul refers to in Chapter 2 and chapter 3 is a closed group. They don't exist today. There's none like them today. Now, having said that, what then are we to make of what Paul says in verse 11 that Christ has given the apostles and the prophets? Now, there are some who believe that the reference to apostles and prophets in verse 11 is the same reference to the apostles and prophets in chapters 2 and 3. And if that view is correct, then what it means is that as it relates to the equipping of the saints today, the only extent to which God's people would benefit and be equipped from apostles and prophets is through their words that are recorded in Scripture, through the revelation that God gave to them that is recorded 
in Scripture. And that would mean that the only in-person equipping that takes place today is through the evangelists and through the shepherds and teachers. And notice that shepherds, shepherd and teacher is really one. That, that, and you know that. And here's, here's your other hint, Andre. When we're looking at these in verse 11, notice in verse 11 it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. The reason we know that shepherds and teachers are one is there's only one definite article. The word the is the definite article. And it is the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. One definite article for each one of those groups. Not the indefinite, and, but the definite, the. Now, I don't think the view that the apostles and the prophets referred to in verse 11 are the same apostles and prophets referred to in chapters 2 and 3. And, and let me try to explain why I say that. I think the first indication that Paul is, is dealing with, with um, different gifts is that in chapters 2 and 3, he refers to the apostles and prophets, one definite article to refer to both of them. And he does that in chapter 2, he does that in chapter 3. However, when he comes to chapter 4 and in verse 11, he refers to the apostles and the prophets. He doesn't refer to them collectively. He refers to them now individually. They were collective in chapters 2 and 3. But now in chapter 4, he refers to them individually as the apostles and the prophets. And so I think what, what can be said in, in light of that is while these individuals that Paul is referring to in chapter 4, verse 11, th they don't have authority in their speech they don't, they're not the same as the foundational revelational apostles that he talks about in chapters 2 and 3. But they would be people who have this kind of gifting. A gifting, Christ gives ministry abilities to pioneer works of um, in virgin territory or to plan churches, to strengthen churches, and to ensure that churches are built soundly and on, on sound doctrine. Th that is more of an, an apostolic kind of ministry, but not apostles in the sense of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and, and those. As a matter of fact, to be one of those apostles, you had to have seen the Lord. And so I, I believe that Paul is addressing here something, uh, a gifting that is different from those particular gift offices that he refers to in chapters 2 and 3. And when you think of prophets, um, prophets today would be those who have a gift of prophecy, those who share those thoughts that they believe God brings to mind, and they use those thoughts to encourage and to build up the people of God. And let me just help you to see why I say this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 29 to 32, here's what Paul writes. He says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to the other sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. Clearly, Paul is not talking about foundational, prof foundational prophets here who would be apostles and prophets that he talked about in chapters 2 and 3. Not talking about them. And here's how we know. The reason we know is that their words, the words of these prophets that Paul is talking about 
in 1 Corinthians 14, their words are not infallible in terms of it being the very words of God. Because Paul says you're to judge their words. He says you let two or three of them speak and let the rest judge to see whether what they're saying is worthy to be received or needs to be rejected. And so what Paul has in mind here in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 32, and look, there are lots of them. He says, let, let up to three of them speak, and then let the others who are sitting there judge. And if something is revealed to another one, well, then he should stay silent. And so clearly these are not foundational apostles. I mean, uh, prophets, sorry. These are, I believe, those who would fit the description that he is referring to in verse 11 in chapter 4. Those who have this uh, gift that God has given where they are able to report to brothers and sisters what they believe God has brought to mind. And they can miss it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church and he says to them, don't despise prophecy. But prove all things. Prove it. Test it. Check to see whether it is, it is sound. And hold fast to what is good, meaning not everything is good. And, and, and this is all a part of church life. This is all a part of building up the uh, body of, of Christ. And what is the goal of this kind of prophetic ministry that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 14? It's not revelational in terms of being a part of Scripture. He tells us in verse 3 of chapter 14, he says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's the purpose of prophecy. And so God can and does give ministry to individuals where he uses them in communicating words to others that build them up, that strengthen them, that console them. It's all a part of church life. And God determines those individuals to whom he would give that gifting. Now, when you read in, in, first, in first Corinthians 14, uh, more broadly, you'll see Paul expressing a desire that all of God's people would prophesy. And so there is a gift of of prophecy that is broad in the church, but there also seems to be this gift of prophet where God would, would grant a measure of gifting to an individual to be able to equip in a, in a broader way more than just the, the uh, general gift of, of prophecy. And so I believe that um, in verse 11, when Paul is talking about he gave the apostles and the prophets, these are in, in different ways and separate from what he has already addressed in the earlier um, chapters. And, and I, again, I don't want to be misunderstood on this particular point. The apostles and prophets that Paul addresses in chapters 2 and 3, they're all dead. But what he addresses in chapter 11, my best understanding of that is that these are not the same, and so they don't have a kind of authority in their speech, but God uses them as a part of equipping the saints in the church. Now, what can be said about evangelists? I like John Stott's definition. He writes this. He says, it may refer to the gift of evangelistic preaching, or of making the gospel particularly plain and relevant to unbelievers, or helping, or, or helping Tomorrow's people to take the plunge of commitment to Christ or effective, or of effective personal witnessing. And Tomorrow's means someone who is a bit timid or fearful, apprehensive, lacking in, in confidence. Um, He's saying evangelists have a way of helping those kinds of people, one, to commit to Christ, but also helping others, equipping them that they would witness for Christ and they'd share their faith. 
And then the last one, uh, the shepherd and teacher. Again, one gift. And this implies um, those who guard and care for the flock by protecting them and feeding them. Now, I think one helpful observation to see from verse 11 is that each of these gifts in one way or another is connected to instructing or teaching God's people. Each one of them has a teaching element in it. The apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, they are equipping God's people for gifts of, sorry, for, um, for ministry. And God's intent is that the equipping gifts will prepare the serving gifts for the works of ministry to edify the church. And the works of ministry would speak to all of God's work, all of God's people being engaged in all of God's work. And God's work is a multifaceted work, which is the work of the Great Commission, the proclamation of the gospel, the making of disciples, the planting of churches, the strengthening of churches, and this is an ongoing work and an ongoing cycle of activity. And it is through this process that members of the church grow into this functional unity. With these diverse gifts that God has given to them, the equippers who God has given to the church, they are to equip these individuals, and so together they begin to function in a way that is helpful and beneficial to the church. And part of that is learning to grow in appreciation for one another's gifts. Those who are gifted differently from the way we are. All right, the first point was a bit long. The second and third are not as long. That's the first aspect what he addresses in this passage, the diversity of gifts. The second is the unity of faith. The unity of faith. The result of the equipping gifts, preparing the serving gifts of God's people, is to bring them into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Verse 12 says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And here I don't believe that what Paul is saying is that the goal is that all groups of people, all denominations will all believe the same thing. I don't think he is saying that God's goal in giving these equippers is to bring all of the people of God everywhere into one single unity of faith. I think it's best understood what he is saying in the, in, in the local uh, church context. Well, certainly in a common group, you can have a denomination where they all embrace the same thing. For example, we are part of Sovereign Grace Churches, and so we would have uh, sameness of faith with other Sovereign Grace Churches and a general similarity with Reformed Churches in, in general. But I think Paul is addressing this more in, in the local um, setting that these equippers are bringing God's people to a shared unity of faith um, over time. Now, I think one thing should be obvious to all of us as we consider this, and that is that teaching obviously cannot be ignored. And this is why we see these gifts in an instructive kind of way. They are teaching. This is not generic teaching. This is doctrinal teaching. This is teaching the truths and the beliefs of the faith. And it is impossible to teach doctrine without pointing out differences in beliefs. There are differences. And sometimes when you address these differences, some measure of controversy can result. And it explains why some churches shy away from discussing doctrine because sometimes they do bring division because they 
bring to the surface that sometimes people in the same uh, church can believe different things. And so you have some churches that will just stay away from doctrine altogether, and they just labor to keep everybody together with all the different views that they have, never talking about doctrine, and they have more of a show of unity than true unity. And the basis of our unity is centered around the Lord Jesus Christ and his, his person and his work. That is what we are all um, centered around. But this doesn't happen automatically. This is to be very intentional, and effort must be put forth to ensure that we are believing the same thing. Paul, in his letter to the church at Corinth, as he opened that letter, he said to them, I appeal to you, 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And here I think, as we consider how we might apply this, I think it points to the importance of us taking very seriously on a personal level, making every effort to ensure that we embrace opportunities when we are together. Because when we, open, when we are together, we open God's word and we try to learn and grow together in terms of what we believe and what is central to our faith. And so we, we want to embrace those opportunities. Times like this, times like Bible study, even prayer. We open God's word during that time. And in the process, we are growing in our shared unity of the faith. Notice that the Apostle Paul earlier in chapter 4, he was talking about the unity of the Spirit. And now he's talking about the unity of of the faith. And in truth, we are better positioned to maintain the unity of the Spirit when we have a unity of the faith. Well, third and finally, having addressed diversity of gifts and unity of faith, Paul addresses what is clearly the ultimate aim, which is maturity in Christ. He addresses this in verses 13, the end of verse 13 through verse 16. And the aim is that those with the equipping gifts, referred to in verse 11, will prepare those with the serving gifts, referred to in verse 7, with the goal being Christian maturity, so that the people of God are stable and productive members of the church. And notice that Paul uses several different words to refer to maturity. He talks about mature manhood in verse 13. He also talks about the stature of the fullness of Christ in verse 13. In verse 14, he talks about no longer children. And then in verse 15, that we would grow up in every way. In verse 14, we see the risk of lacking spiritual maturity. When we lack spiritual maturity, we will be like the waves of the sea on a windy day, just tossed to and fro. Paul is, not, Paul is using a vivid description to help us to see what a lack of spiritual maturity that is rooted in doctrine, rooted in who Christ is, and rooted in what his work has accomplished, a lack of that will produce instability in our lives. It would be like the wind. You know, on a windy day, the waves will be going in one direction, and sometimes on that same day, the wind changes direction, the waves go in another direction. And Paul says that's what it's like to lack spiritual maturity. That's what it's like to lack the equipping and the preparing of coming into this unity of the faith that is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work, who he is and what he has done.
it is sobering to me as a pastor to read these words of the Apostle Paul in verse 14, where he says, he is warning, he is he's saying that, here, here's, here's what happens. Those who lack spiritual maturity, those who lack this doctrinal foundation that they should have, they will be at the mercy of men who are engaged in human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. Brothers and sisters, that is sobering. It is not enough to say that because somebody gets up in a pulpit and holds up a Bible, or somebody goes by the name of pastor, that we can trust every single thing that comes out of their mouth. Paul says some are involved in human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. And here's something I would say to us this morning. Here's a hint as to how you can get a sense as to whether you are, are spiritually mature and whether you are stable in the faith. If you engage in social media, if you watch so-called Christian television, and you're able to say amen to much of that, my brother, my sister, that is a telltale sign that you have fallen prey to the slight and cunning craftiness and unsound doctrine that is pervading the internet and pervading much of, of Christian television. I'm not saying there's nothing good out there. There are good things out there, but what is good out there is far and few and far in between, and we need discernment. If we are amening all the things that people are posting and without thought just liking it and loving it and sharing it, my friend, it is a telltale sign that we are deficient in the very thing that the Apostle Paul is addressing here. And friends, it is our spiritual life. This is no game. This is, no, this is not something that doesn't have consequence. It has consequences. We will be unstable. We will be frivolous. We will be at the mercy of heartless men who use God's word for their own selfish aims. And so in this description that the Apostle Paul gives us is a very sober warning that we all need to take heed to. If we lack spiritual maturity, we're being conned every single day in spiritual ways. We're being swung in so many ways. But there's a better alternative. And Paul points to that better alternative in, verse, in verses 15 and 16. He says, we are to speak the truth in love and we are to grow up into Christ in every way. This doesn't happen by osmosis. This, this happens by effort. This happens by being intentional to be in God's word personally, to be in God's word together so that we may grow up into Christ in every way, speaking the truth in love. Notice the individual responsibility that we all have in verse 16. He says, From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Brothers and sisters, every one of us who's a part of this local church has a vital part to play, a vital role to play. And Paul is saying that we will be at our best in growing into Christ-likeness and growing into maturity when each of us is playing our part, when each of us is effectively functioning the way that we are supposed to function. And I want to ask you, what, what is your part? What is the gift or what are the gifts that God has given to you for this body that you would supply that to cause this body to grow and mature in the Lord Jesus Christ? If when you consider that question, your mind kind of goes blank and you're not so sure, I encourage you to reach out to me. I, I, I would love to come alongside you and help you to discover and recognize 
how the Lord may have gifted you to be a vital part of this body. Paul uses two words five times in this letter of Ephesians. It's the most he's used these two words in all of his letters. And the two words are in love. And if you notice, he starts in verse 15, he says, but rather speaking the truth in love. And then he ends what he says in verse 16 with the words in love again. That's the sandwich. That's the basis upon which we are to function together in love. And as I've said before, love is better described than defined. And we should always be refreshing in our minds this description of love. The best description that we have is in 1 Corinthians 13. It reminds us of aspects of love that are so important when we are in a body, when we have different gifts, when we have different personalities. And sometimes we sin against one another. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love does not keep a record of wrong. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is patient and kind. And Paul says we are to do this work in love. We to speak the truth in love. We are to build the body up in love. This is the aim, brothers and sisters. This is the aim for all churches. This is God's aim for our church. That we would be united and we would be matured through diverse gifts that God has given to us. And may this be increasingly true as the Lord gives us breath and life to be together and to grow together as a local church. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would use the gifts that you have given to us for the building up of this church, that we might be mature and we might be stable and we might do the work that you have given to us to do together for the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.